0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. <laughs> My name is Esteban and I am uh, in the Olson's Community Group. Our teaching text this morning come from Revelation 1, 1 through 20. what is written on it for the time is near jump to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Praise to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who purse him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account on him, even so Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty I, John, your brother in partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called. Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what I see in a book and, I s- and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to the Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and the Theatera, and the Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like a burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as through dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not; I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of the death and Hades. Why, right therefore, the things that I, that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place at this after this." As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches this is the word of the lord you might be sitting
0: Grab a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 1. As I mentioned earlier, if you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad you're with us. If you're new especially, thanks for worshiping with us. There's a lot of things you could do on a Sunday morning. Uh, so thanks for being here. We'd love to meet you, connect with you. Revelation 1, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the rows somewhere. You're going to want that. We're just going to work through the text this morning uh, and help it make sense into our lives. And let's pray together. Ask the Lord to be with us. Lord. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for your truth that is lasting through the generations. Lord, thank you that it is just as applicable to us today as it was 1900 plus years ago when John wrote it to the churches. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open to your spirit, rebuking us, correcting us, encouraging us, training us in righteousness. Lord, that's what your word does. You promised that, and so we're resting and banking on that promise. What if that's not true, then we waste our time. We don't want to waste our time, Lord. And so you have to do what you say you will do, Just get your word into our hearts such that our lives are changed. We love you. We need you. Open our hearts. We pray all these things in God's name and all God's people said, amen. What does it mean to be a successful church? That was the question posed to me six months out from moving to Charlotte by a well-seasoned church planner as we sat over a cup of coffee. And I knew that my answer to that question was the determining factor behind whether his well-established church was going to help give us funding to start this new thing called Citizens. But at that point, I had enough support meetings to know exactly how I was supposed to answer. What does it mean to be a successful church? Well, I know that most people in church world would classify it by the three Bs. Bodies, buildings, and budgets. Pastors love alliterations. How many people you have in worship, how big your annual budget is, and the niceness of your facility. I know that's what most people say, but we're much, much, much more spiritual than that. We go by the fourth B, baptisms. That's what it means to be a successful church. If we go and we start this thing in Charlotte and we baptize one person, if we see one person come to faith in Jesus, it will all be worth it. And I sat back, very content in my naivety, only to have this older, seasoned pastor lean forward with a calm, confident humility and simply ask the question again, what does it mean to be a successful church? That question is at the forefront of our series we're going to be in over the next eight weeks. A series we're calling Letters, Lampstands, and the Lamb. We're going to be looking together at the opening chapters one through three of Revelation, where Jesus himself, who the scriptures call the Lamb of God, through the Apostle John, writes seven letters to seven prominent churches in ancient Asia Minor, who the text is going to call lampstands. It's letters to the lampstands, the churches, from the lamb. Very clever. What we're going to see as we look at each of these letters is that the answer Jesus gives to this question and the answer the pastor gave to me three and a half plus years ago, along with some significant funding, praise the Lord for our church, is this. Success is faithfulness to Jesus. Success is faithfulness to Jesus. Success is not numerical growth, Success is not having enough money in the bank to keep the lights on. Success is not having a nice facility or even a facility. Success is not even the amount of healed marriages or changed lives or ended addictions or even social good you do for the marginalized in the city. Though all of those things are good and not bad, success for a church according to Jesus himself in Revelation 1-3 through is simply faithfulness to him. And that's what I want us to understand and grasp over the next eight weeks, that success for us as a church is faithfulness to Jesus, specifically faithfulness in four things. This is what we're going to see over the next eight weeks. Success is faithfulness to Jesus in doctrine, what a church teaches and believes, in holiness, how a church lives out said beliefs, in love, meaning an earnest desire and affection for Christ and his people, and in patient suffering patiently walking through the trials of this world as we wait for Christ's return. That's success according to Jesus. That's the aim of these seven letters we'll read to these seven churches. And that brings us to what I want to do today with our time together. As you'll see as we kind of track through this series, these seven letters are not rainbows and sunshine by any stretch of the imagination. This is not, brace yourself, seven love letters from Jesus to churches about how they're being awesome. If you've read the first three chapters of Revelation, you know this, that these letters are full of warnings and rebukes and corrections and commands to repent and hold fast. At some point, he's going to say, don't worry, more suffering's coming. I need you to stick with me on this. It's going to be full of all of these things, and they're going to be difficult, even though they're the letters of Jesus himself, to hear and to accept, not even to mention to obey, which is why today, today is so important. Because what I want to do today is I want to give you what I want you to think of as the fuel for our obedience fire, okay? And I say this with no exaggeration. If you miss today, the rest seven weeks will become a legalistic, unable to continue out burden. You miss today, you will think I am saying something I am very far from saying. You will think I am saying, if you do these things, then Jesus will love you. You will think I am saying, if you do these things, then God will approve of you. If you don't understand today, you will not make it in the Christian life. Because as we've said before, I'm supposed to do this and I'm not supposed to do this is not a sustainable way to follow Jesus. Like we've said this over and over again, ought to is not long-term fuel for discipleship to Christ over the decades of your life to come. I'm learning this firsthand right now, that you have to understand a greater why behind just the Bible tells me so. I'm learning this firsthand right now. So we've officially entered the why phase of the Olson household. Anybody else? Any other parents with me in this? They told me it was coming, and then Harper turned three, and it was just like, boom, here it is. So her answer to every question or every direction I want to give her is the same question. Why? Hey, Harper, will you put your shoes on? Why? Hey, Harper, can we brush your teeth? Why? Hey, Harper, do you need to use the potty? Why? It's like, that's not even, a, that's, what does that even mean, Right? And here's the thing, I hated this answer when I was a kid. I hated it. But now that I'm a parent, I find myself saying it all of the time. Because I, what? Said so. Which has no long-term ability to form her into a functioning adult. Because here's what's going to happen. She cannot become a college sophomore one day and go, should I clean the dishes or not, lest my roommates hate me, and then think, well, my dad told me so. That is not a long-term functional way to live. As a human or as a Christian? Now, do we believe the scriptures? Yes. Are they our authority? Yes, because of the word of God. Absolutely. But you have to be gripped and shaped and molded and in love with a greater why behind your following of Jesus. And that's why John's going to start us today in chapter one with the why. And that's made clear in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The therefore is there to ground chapters two and three in everything he's about to say in chapter, or everything he just said in chapter one. So the next seven weeks, seven letters, how and what in faithfulness to Jesus. Today, why we are a church faithful to Jesus. And John's gonna give us three reasons. Here's what we're gonna explore over the next few minutes. Three reasons why we are called to be faithful as the church to Jesus. What Christ has done, what he will do, and who he is. So where we're going over the next few minutes. Let's look at number one. Three reasons why we are faithful to Jesus. Reason number one, what Christ has done. First reason we are faithful to Jesus in our doctrine and our living and our love and our suffering well is because of what Christ has done. We'll start in verse one of Revelation chapter one. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Nice, I like it. And blessed are those who hear. Good job. And who keep, that's a bad Bible joke, I'm so sorry. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, and we'll get into that in a little bit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, this is the key, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First reason why we live as a church faithful to Jesus because of what Jesus has done. We are faithful to him as a church because the reason we are even a church, and what I mean by that is the called out and assembled people of God, is because Christ has made us a church. How? Two two things the passage points us to. First, he freed us from our sins by his blood. It's the first thing Christ has done for us. The message of the scriptures, you know this, is that you and I and all of humanity are born under what the scriptures call bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. We are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2. We, we think we're free. We think we're free to do whatever we want. Right? We point and we say, okay, the Christians are the ones who have all the rules. They can't do all this stuff. When really, the language of Romans 6 says that we are slaves to our passions and desires that wage war within us. Now, if you know the gospel story, you know Jesus enters into humanity. He takes on flesh. He lives the perfect, free from the bondage of sin life, sheds his blood on a cross so that you and I can be freed. Galatians 1, freedom. He has set us free, free from the power of sin, such that you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can actually say no to sin, and free from the penalty and punishment of a just God for sin and sinners. He sets us free by the shedding of his blood. But not only that, it goes even farther. He has also, according to the text, made us a kingdom and priests to God. The language John is using here is meant to point us to the fact that we are facilitators of God's presence. That's how priests functioned in the Old Testament. They were facilitators of God's presence. They were mediators, go-betweens, between God, his presence, and his people, They would enter into God's presence in the place of the temple called the Holy of Holies to mediate, to stand between God and his people. And John says that's what Jesus now has done for all who trust in him. He's made us priests. Meaning what? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The presence of God is with us forever. That we live as mediators of God's presence in the world through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if I can put it even more succinctly, reason number one for why we live faithfully for Jesus as the church is because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, the gospel is the only power of long-term motivation for the long-haul Christian life. It's the central rallying point behind how we grow and live and continue to live faithfully for Jesus. This is where I have to go on a little bit of a rant. Too many Christians think the gospel is just simply Christianity 101. You know what I mean by that? Too many Christians think, okay, I believe in Jesus, that enters me into the Christian life, and then I got to go deeper. And that usually means one of two things, either rich, theological, exegetical study or practical steps to living a better life. So I believe in Jesus, I trust in his life, death, and resurrection, and then I either need that nuance of that one Hebrew word in Exodus 15 or four steps to a perfect marriage. That's the deeper stuff on how I'm going to follow him over the long haul. That's not how the scriptures paint the picture of growth. According to the scriptures, the way we grow is not using the gospel as the entrance point, and then you leave it behind. The way we grow in the Christian life is not apart from the gospel, it's through the gospel. As one pastor puts it, the gospel is not just the diving board of the Christian life, it's the swimming pool. Or take the words of Tim Keller, he says it this way, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we all make progress in the kingdom. This is why one of the things we try to emphasize so strongly, if you've been to one of our community groups, is that when it comes to helping each other look more like Jesus, which if you're like, what's the goal? That's the goal of group, okay? It's not just for you to find friends, not just for you to find community, that's good. The number one goal of our groups is to help you look more like Jesus around other people who you are helping look more like Jesus. And the reason why we push it this way is this. We want to be a people of good news over good advice. You tracking with me? Good news over good advice. Here's what that means. That means when someone confesses sin, the first response is not, here's what helps me, or here's three steps you could do to help push back against that. Now, practical steps are not bad. We're not against practical steps. We want good news and then good advice. So here's how the difference looks. We're in group time, and someone's confessing their sin to the people around them, and they say something about anger. Like, I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling. uh, I'm just mad at work, or I'm mad at my family, or I'm mad at my roommate. I'm just angry. Step one is not to go, well, here's the three things I do to help with my anger. Step one is to go, let's talk about the patience of Christ for you. Let's talk about the reality of what Christ has borne on your behalf. Let's talk about how much you should make him angry, and yet he goes to the cross taking the full weight of your sin upon himself. See how different that motivation of change is? See how different that then leads to a different response? Or think about this one, maybe work identity. Someone's struggling with their performance at work, and they just feel like they're not measuring up, they're not living into it. Option one is to go, hey, here's four things I do to help myself be a better employee. Or, We can go, hey, here's the good news of the gospel that in Christ Jesus, I said this way too much, a group, the guys are gonna laugh. In Christ Jesus, you have an identity more secure than you could ever imagine, more rich, more solid, more unmovable, that then drives any amount of work performance you want to strive for, rooted in what Christ says over you through his work on the cross. Do you see the difference? Do you see how one leads to long term lasting change and the other just to greater burdens of effort? Faithfulness to Jesus starts by remembering what he has done, remembering the gospel. Reason number two for why we are faithful to Jesus. Reason number one is what Christ has done. Reason number two is what Christ will do. What he will do. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Behold, John writes, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who was who is and who was and who is to come the almighty second reason why we're faithful to jesus is because of what christ will do. This was the whole point of last week's sermon. If you missed it, go watch it, go listen to it, where Garrison outlined that last phrase of the Apostles' Creed, right? That we will have a resurrection, new bodies, where we will spend eternity with Jesus and a new heaven and a new earth for all who trust in him. And John's pointing to that reality. Verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. John's pointing to that as a reason for why we live faithfully because here's what happens in our everyday life. Life in the modern secular West drives you to only focus on the here and now, right? What's right in front of me, immediate gratification, instant success, instant just fixing of the problem. Everything in our lives just takes our vision from upward to downward. What John is doing is trying to lift our gaze back up. Hey, remember you're part of a bigger story. Remember you're a part of something different to come. Remember that Christ is going to come and you will receive, if you trust in him, the spoils of his victory. An inheritance, a kingdom, a place with God forever, new resurrected bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. And remembering this and living in light of this is part of how we remain faithful to Jesus. This is an idea we'll see Jesus come back to at the end of each letter. He'll say the same phrase, to the one who conquers. You're going to see that in every single letter. He's going to end by saying to the one who conquers, meaning to the one who remains faithful, to the one who holds fast and firm to Christ in temptation and suffering and the ups and downs of life. And then he'll spell out for us some part of future promise that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you two examples of this. Revelation 2.7, he's going to say, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who holds fast to Christ, look at what's to come. Eating again of the tree they've been barred from since Genesis 3. Well, Revelation 3:5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Can you imagine Christ Jesus confessing your name before the Father? Your name before the Father for the one who conquers. This conquering is not simply, let me, you know, grit my teeth and clench my fists and bear it. The conquering that he calls us to, that Jesus calls us to, is a conquering that is fueled by his first conquering. Look at Revelation 5. We won't get into this part of it, but I just want to show you this. This is what John says in Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So track with me. John says, to the one who conquers, but look who conquered first, the lamb. So what's happening when he's returning? When he's returning, he is ushering in, in full, the victory that he's already won and guaranteed through his life, death, and resurrection. And so John says, he conquered, and so now we conquer because he has conquered. The best way I have to explain this to you is 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, right? If you know the story, David, little shepherd boy, right, goes and defeats nine-foot Philistine giant Goliath with a sting, sling, and a stone, right? And we read that story in Christian circles all wrong, completely wrong, because here's how we read it. Hey, look, you're David, and God is with you to tackle the giant. No, that's not fully wrong. It's just mostly wrong, because in the story, you're not David, and I am not David. You know who we are in 1 Samuel 17? We're the cowering Israelites shaking in our boots afraid. David points to Jesus, the conquering, notice this, shepherd king from Bethlehem. Who does that remind you of? a shepherd king from Bethlehem, David points forward to Jesus as the conquering one who slays the giant. And then you know what we do? Shaking in our boots, we see the conquering victory of Jesus, and then we go, oh yes, we can win too! And then we charge after our enemy. That's who we are in the story, and that's the picture John points us to in Revelation chapter one. Because he conquered, we too now can conquer. We can have victory over the things that plague us. We too can stand firm in suffering and trial and temptation. All right, number three who Christ is. Who Christ is. Verse 9. Oh, that's fine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, who on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's caught up in some kind of vision From the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. Send it to these seven churches to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen." those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I don't know what your picture of Jesus that you have in your mind is. Like, when you think Jesus, I don't know if you imagine, like, fair-skinned, long-haired, hippie guy holding the lamb. That was the painting in my childhood church. Or if you're much more like Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen. right? Like I don't know how you picture Jesus, but chances are when you think of Jesus, you don't think eyes like fire, hair like snow, feet of bronze, face like the sun, holding stars in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. Is that your picture of Christ? And I love these portraits of Jesus in the scriptures because we try so hard to domesticate him in our society today. We try so hard to turn him into sort of this hippie peace sign pacifist that just sort of is there to soothe and ease our whims and our wants. But if we're willing to be intellectually honest, the scriptures actually don't let us do that with the glorified risen Savior. With the glorified risen Savior, we read, I see a picture that is much more bold and brass and scary and terrifying. I mean, there's a reason why John says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet feet as though dead. Are you kidding me? Which, just for the record, that's like everybody's response when they see Jesus on the throne in the scriptures. Isaiah 6 is another one. They just fall down dead. They're like, who? What? 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 (laughs) That's all they do. They're like, what? John's like, I fell at his feet as though dead. When I see Jesus in his glory, when I see him in his holiness. I mean, just look at this picture he paints of Jesus in Revelation 1. Like, look at this, right? He says he's like the Son of Man. That's a reference back to the uh, prophecies about the Messiah, right? The one who was to come was to be, according to Isaiah, the son of man. He says he's got a long robe and a golden sash. It's pointing to his kingship, that Jesus rules and reigns in power. It says his hair is white, white like wool. This is a a reference back to Daniel 7, where Daniel gives a description of God. And so uh, John is saying, Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's a part of the triune God. John says his eyes are like fire. It's pointing to his all-knowing and all-searching gaze across the world. His feet like burnished bronze. It's a statement of purity, that Jesus is holy and righteous and good and true. His voice is like the roar of many waters and trumpets. He's powerful. Someone's like, Jesus speaks in a still, small voice. Not in Revelation 1. Trumpets. There's a sword coming from his mouth. It's a declaration of definitive judgment, that his judgment is true and right and good. It's both healing for those who trust in him and punishment for those who don't. His face is like the shining sun, blazing, majestic, glorious. We can't even look at the sun midday. The face of Jesus is like that. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, meaning he's eternal from before time began. To eternity, future, he will always be. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He's the victorious, conquering king where even death cannot hold him. And then if that's not enough, he ends by talking about how he has seven angels in his right hand. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that means, but here's what I think it it means. I think that means there's actual angels assigned to watch over the churches. And the fact that the stars are in the right hand of Jesus is a picture that he is the one who holds the church together. He controls it. He protects it. He is the groom who cares for his bride. He is the chief shepherd who watches over his sheep. He is the king who reigns over his kingdom. This, according to John, is Jesus. This is the one we're called to be faithful to. Majestic, glorious, powerful, mighty, awesome, face like the sun, feet of bronze. Jesus is the one who in the next two chapters is going to tell us to repent and tell us to come back to him and tell us to not forget our first love and to tell us to stand firm in suffering this Jesus. That's why at the beginning of all seven letters, Jesus is going to start with one of these pictures we see in Revelation chapter 1. Every single one. He's going to start with some image of him John gave us in the first chapter. He's going to say stuff like, The one who has the two-edged sword says this to Pergamum. Or the words of the first and the last says this to Smyrna. He's grounding each command, each warning, each rebuke in the glory of Christ himself so here's what I want you to see from Revelation 1, the whole point, the whole why, the whole thing, Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about him. It's about Christ. The the driving, motivating factor of all of our faithfulness to him is he who was first faithful to us. He who shines like the glorious sun in the sky. This is the only thing that will drive a long-term sustainable faithfulness to Jesus over the long haul of decades to come in your life. Which I hope you want, right? Do you want that? like— There's a lot of good, like, polite nods. Like, genuinely, is the driving core motivation of your heart faithfulness to Jesus over the long decades he gives you on this earth? If it is, John will tell us the number one way you do that is deep love, awe, and affection for Christ. That's it. That's the only way. What he's done to rescue us, what he will do to come back for us and who he is, pure, holy, majestic, and powerful king. And so it's fitting that John ends this way in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus holds the church, guides the church, protects the church, cares for the church, will come to rescue the church, and what do the churches do? They shine as lampstands surrounding the Lamb. So what are we supposed to do as the people of God? As the collective, called-out, assembled people of God, shine on the Lamb as lampstands, right? Isn't this what Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? You are a city on a hill. That's not like you individually, wherever you, you, know, it's you collectively, the people of God are a city, a light shining as a city on a hill. Or Ephesians 3.20, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. Paul says, through the church, the wisdom and glory of God will be made known, not just to humans on earth, but to the heavenly rulers and authorities. What? Like when we're doing this correctly, faithfully to Jesus, there's something about this preaching to angels. That's crazy. It's beautiful. It's what we're called to. We're called to make much of him and shine on him and point to him and glory in him. And so what does all this mean for us over the next seven weeks? Here's where I want to close. And I promise I am closing. Over the next seven weeks, here's what I want to invite you into. Two postures, two heart-level, here's how I want to be bent as we journey through this series together. And we've got some practices on that sheet that's going to help you with that, that hopefully was on your seat. Two postures. The posture number one is worship. Worship. I want, I want you to first and foremost be ready to worship Jesus. This is a series about the church, but even more than that, it's a series about Jesus. Our faithfulness is grounded in Him. I love the way Danny Aiken in his commentary on Revelation says it. He says, Revelation— Rightly understood, had a word for the first century church. And rightly understood, it has had a word for the church throughout history. And rightly understood, it has a word for the church today and tomorrow. At the heart of that word, that message is this gaze on the exalted and glorified Christ. What's revelation about? It's about looking at Jesus, it's about gazing at him. And so, to that end, I just want to invite us, as we step into this room on Sundays, to come with a heart posture ready to worship Jesus ready to make much of Jesus, but not just here, but also throughout the week. And so that's practice number one. To that end, our worship team has put together an incredible playlist just to help draw your heart into Jesus through worship, through song over the course of the next seven weeks. And so as you're driving in the car, as you're making breakfast, as you're doing whatever you do when you usually have background noise on, we encourage you just pull that up, play it. It's rich theologically. It's rich in terms of the um, themes that it has. And so I just encourage you, Come with a heart of worship all throughout the week, and then even into Sundays. The second posture I want to invite you to is the posture of humility. posture of humility. What I mean by that is that when we read hard things in this, these letters, let's not put ourselves above them. Let's not point the finger, let's not think man. I really hope that other person in my group's here in this right now can't wait to talk about it on Wednesday. Like it, right? I heard a pastor say recently that people come into church looking for one of three C's. Again, pastors love alliterations. They come looking for comfort. I hope, hope this is encouraging to me. I hope it's comforting to my soul. I hope it, hope it eases what I'm going through. They look for consent, meaning I hope what the pastor says is in line with my already predetermined beliefs. I hope what he says from Scripture already just confirms what I already think. And then when those two things don't happen, they choose option three, which is the third C of caveat. Oh, well, he wasn't really talking about me anyway. No, that doesn't really apply given my unique circumstances and situations. And so I would invite us as a church over the next seven weeks to choose a fourth posture, also a C, conviction, humble conviction. Lord, would you actually speak to me because I'm assuming that the scriptures are true. And so therefore I'm assuming I'm a sinner and I'm assuming until Jesus returns or calls me home, my life is not perfectly in line with your word. And so show me how that is true because what I want is more of Christ. And part of growing more into the image of Christ is being convicted for our sin. And so I invite all of us, myself included, to come with a posture of humility. And one of the ways we're going to foster that is through the practice of fasting. So I invite you. We've got some resources on that page, on your seat. We've got some ways we're going to step into this together. Nothing will grow your humility before the face of God, like realizing you're a human with limits. One of those limits is that we need food to survive. And so fasting is one of these practices we're going to seek to step into together. There's resources on how to do this well and wisely based on your season of life, based on your past relationship to food and your body. Please check those out. Before you just like write it off, like I'm not going to fast, here's X, Y, and Z, please at least give that sermon a listen about food and body image. At least listen to that and pray and see what the Holy Spirit invites you into. That's my only request. Seek that out with your group and with the Lord. Again, we've got a handout of all these things on your seat. It's also going to be on our website. This is going to be a good series. I'm excited. The video is going to stay that ominous for the next seven weeks, so look forward to that. But here's the reality. Here's what I want you to know. This seven weeks is not going to radically change your entire life, but what it can do if you're willing to come in with a spirit of worship and a spirit of humility is that the Holy Spirit might help you take one little step in the long obedience in the same direction. And that's what we're going for. Faithfulness to Jesus over the long haul. We might love him a little bit more in eight weeks than we do today. I'd love that for me. I hope you'd love that for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you with the two postures we sense you're inviting us into as a community. Lord, we come with the spirit of worship. We come with the spirit of humility. And Lord, those are not the natural bents of our heart. We want to acknowledge and we want to own and we want to confess that the natural bent of our hearts is not to worship you, but to worship ourselves. It's not to be humble, but it's to puff ourselves up, Lord. And so we need, wow, do we need your spirit. But by your grace and your kindness and your power, do we grow in worship and humility such that we love Jesus more. So Lord, I just pray for us as a community over the next eight weeks, Lord, I pray your hand will be on us as we study Revelation together, as we discuss it in our groups, as we journey alongside of one another over lunches and coffees and dinners and walks and play dates and all the ways our community is intertwined, Lord, I pray that you would move in power that eight weeks from now we would see just a little bit more faithfulness to Jesus in our lives because of what you've done. We would give you all the glory and all the praise for it. Lord, we celebrate you as the glorious, majestic face like a sun, feet like bronze, sword out of the mouth, judging, rising, ruling, reigning, glorious King. We want to love you more. Because you love us so much first. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.